Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, The Resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 28, verses 1 to 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Matthew 28, 1-4. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. In Matthew chapter 19, before the events of Passion Week and the Easter story, Jesus was in a conversation with a rich young man. The young man wants to know how he can inherit eternal life, and Jesus eventually, after some discussion, tells the man that he should sell everything he has and give it to the poor. Then he will have treasure in heaven. Then the young man, bereft now of everything, was to come and follow Jesus. You know, when the strange encounter ended, the young man went away, for he he couldn't part with his possessions, and Jesus seizes on that moment to teach his disciples. He tells them that a rich man will only enter the kingdom with great difficulty. He says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And needless to say, the disciples are shocked. They've never heard such a teaching. And then they begin to put two and two together. I mean, perhaps it's not just the rich and the love for wealth that's the problem. Perhaps there are all manner of loves that men and women cling to, which they will never give up. At least that's what I think gave rise to the question that they asked Jesus. They asked him, who then can be saved? Indeed, if it's a matter of the things we love more than God, who will stand? If we must renounce all of our idols, who can do that? Who can be saved? It's an important question. And in our day, especially when so many assume that it takes nothing at all to be saved, the words of Jesus, if we're even to come close to understanding them, well, they ought to thunder in our heads. It's highly unlikely that we who love sin and love self-indulgence and love putting ourselves first and love our money, that we're even capable of being saved from all of these things. For like the rich young ruler, we cling to these things. And then Jesus answers the dismayed disciples. It's an answer that ought to thunder, just like the question. Yeah, it's highly unlikely to be saved, given the penchant we all have for sin, given that we cling to it, much like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He clung to the ring and he called it my precious, even while it was destroying him. Our sins are our precious. It's impossible to be saved. But Jesus' answer is powerful. He says, with man, it is impossible. Indeed, we can't get there. No human being can extricate himself or herself from his or her sins. But, says Jesus, and what a resounding adversative it is, but, but with God, all things are possible. I mean, those words, but with God, all things are possible, that should be applied to many things. It's not possible that I would renounce my sins, but with God, all things are possible. It's not possible that I will live eternally, that I will survive my own death, but with God. All things are possible. It's not possible that after Jesus was crucified, that his abused and mistreated body that was laid in a tomb that should be raised from the dead. But that's the story. With God, all things are possible. Easter is not the story of new beginnings. 
I remember years ago, I was in church on an Easter Sunday morning. The preacher in that church was a particularly liberal man. He had barely begun to preach, and I knew with certainty that he didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So here it was on Easter Sunday morning, and he was supposed to find something to say. He said, Easter is the story about new beginnings. It's the story about how we can find hope in our darkest moments. You know, and and Christians, he said, should celebrate this glorious reality. Perhaps, he said, you should go home and, and plan to paint your house anew. Or maybe you should plan a new project, start a new job. And when you think that nothing significant is ever going to happen to your life, Easter promises you you can always find hope somewhere. I was a young man when I heard that sermon, and and I'd been in church many times on Easter Sunday. I knew the Easter story, and I knew that wasn't it. Easter is not the story that with humankind, new beginnings are possible. Listen, Easter is the story that with God, nothing is impossible. Easter is the story that Jesus, who was dead and was buried, and then was raised from the dead, that with God, all things are possible. And Easter is also the story that without God, all things end in death. Only with God is there a hope in the resurrection. That's why our hope is in Christ. So carefully consider what Matthew tells us. Matthew begins by telling us the Sabbath is now over. Jesus had been crucified on Friday. He's been laid in the tomb. And because there had been a hurry, that is, to get the body of Jesus into the tomb before the Sabbath began at sunset, Joseph of Arimathea, with, I assume, the help of Nicodemus, has wrapped the body of Jesus in a new burial cloth. He's added a great deal of spices to mask the odor of death, and then they've laid him in the tomb. And according to Matthew, Mary Magdalene and another Mary had accompanied the men to the tomb, and they had spent some time there sitting opposite the tomb. Eventually, they went home. They knew that Jesus' burial had been hurried, but they had time. On Saturday, that is on the Sabbath, they would make plans as to what to do on the first day of the week. After the Sabbath, they would prepare and anoint the body of Jesus with all the dignity that had befitted him. Matthew simply says that when the Sabbath was over, the two Marys, as the dawn was breaking, went to see the tomb. You know, Matthew, as is often the case, gives us a very abbreviated account. And Mark adds details. And I'm reading Mark chapter 16, 1 to 2, and it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. You know, notice that Mark tells us who the other Mary is. She is the mother of James. Also notice that Mark tells us that there's another woman, a third one. He identifies her simply by the name Salome. And so we know there were three. Or were there only three? No, there were more. Luke mentions another woman named Joanna, and then he adds that there were still others. So I would argue there were a large group of women. So Matthew, I think, for his part, mentions the two women who are giving leadership. The two Marys are directing the entire group. But notice the other element that Mark adds. He says that when the Sabbath was passed, they went to buy the spices that were required to anoint the body of Jesus properly. And Mark also says that they bought them when the Sabbath was over. So according to Jewish reckoning, the Sabbath was over at sundown. And so when the sun set on Saturday, the women went, purchased all the items they need. They had everything that was required. 
And then having purchased the items very early in the morning, when the sun rose, and when they could see properly in the morning light, they would go to the tomb, they would open it up, they would go inside, they would anoint the body with the proper burial spices and see that all was in order. Then, no doubt, they planned to close the tomb again. They would have needed help for all of that, and I would assume they would have looked for others to help them move the stone. So it's often asked what the woman were supposed to do with a 2,000-pound stone that was also sealed by the Roman fighting men. But here we need to remember the sequence. The women had been there when Joseph had laid Jesus in a tomb, and it was only after that that the chief priests and the Pharisees had secured the tomb with a Roman guard and that they had actually sealed the door. And so I have to assume that the women weren't aware of what was going on there. And so the sun rises, and I have to assume that the women had agreed upon a meeting place. Then they would journey together, and then they would undertake the grim task of opening the tomb and treating the body of Jesus with proper respect. John in his gospel tells us that Nicodemus had already used a large quantity of spices. Why wasn't that enough? And and frankly, we just don't know. Perhaps a good analogy in our day would be, you know, flowers that are brought to modern day funerals. You know, more is okay. And I think the women must have felt that the rush to prepare the body on Friday night needed to be improved upon. They would make sure that nothing was left undone. But all of that tells us that the women expected nothing other than the dead body of Jesus. Even though Jesus had spoken of his resurrection in the past, the women, just like the men, had not understood him. I mean, perhaps they thought he was speaking metaphorically. Just like the men, the women knew that dead men don't rise. All they anticipated was this last act of love for the man they had believed to be their savior. Mark says they went to the tomb after the sun had arisen. It's now already daylight. And what's more, none of the women realized that by the time they got there, they had already missed the grandest moment in human history. Jesus had risen from the dead. They hadn't been there. Have you ever been too timid to share the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a common concern and a very old obstacle. The reasons for our caution and reticence are varied. We don't want to face a negative response or we don't know how to answer people's questions or rebuttals. Our fear can become so large it swallows our voice. We all need help in speaking our faith. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada offers a free book by Matt Smethurst called Before You Share Your Faith. It's not about an evangelism method. It speaks to our motives and our fears. It it addresses our concerns and offers practical help. So to request your free copy, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let it encourage you to share the good news of Jesus. And please consider offering a financial gift to support the ministry this month. There are those who argue that in the dark, the women had got the tombs mixed up and went to the the wrong one. But remember, Mary and the others had been there when Jesus was buried. They knew the way. And they weren't going in the dark. They were going in the light. 
Now, what they were about to witness was the truth of what Jesus had taught to his disciples and the truth that he had taught about the rich man. With God, all things are possible. Before the women arrived at the tomb, there had been an earthquake. And of course, there had been an earthquake when Jesus had died. This must have felt like the earth was still reeling, an aftershock. But here it's important, if you tell the story of the resurrection of Jesus accurately, that we faithfully admit that what happened at the tomb happened before the women got there. They saw none of it. Matthew says that the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and it was the same angel that simply rolled back the stone that sealed the tomb of Jesus. The door is now wide open. And then the angel that Matthew mentions sits on the stone that he's rolled away. It's often assumed that the angel removed the stone to release Jesus, but that, in my estimation, is really unlikely. I mean, after all, when Jesus met with the disciples later, you're going to remember that the the room where they were meeting was securely locked for fear of the religious authorities. They thought they might get arrested, and yet Jesus had no difficulty entering that room. I assume he would have had no difficulty getting through a sealed tomb. No, no. I think the angel rolled away the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to allow the women and then later Peter and John to get in and examine it. The stone was rolled away so that there might be no doubt that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. And that demands an explanation. But let's get back to the angel opening the door of the tomb. Of course, while that was occurring, there was still a Roman guard. We have in this study made mention of the fact that this was a considerable, well-armed, highly disciplined, trained guard. They were ready for trouble. But of course, the only trouble they were preparing themselves for was for the potential trouble that would come from the disciples. I mean, trouble from angels, they weren't expecting that. Matthew tells us that the angel had an appearance like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. Now, if that's difficult to imagine, here's how I imagine it. You know, from my perspective, it must mean that as lightning flashes brightly in the night sky, so also the brightness that came from this angel was so exceedingly bright, it must have blinded the soldiers. This was a powerful, imposing angel. And since the angel, as described as wearing clothing, white clothing, I have to assume that the angel comes in human form. And and I say that because, as we know from Hebrews 1.7, says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And then later in verse 14 of the same chapter, it calls the angels ministering spirits. So it's clear that angels are spirit and do not have physical bodies. Furthermore, they can't be seen by us unless God gives us the ability to see them. And clearly, in this case, the soldiers are given the ability to see this angel as he appears to them in physical form. It was unexpected. It was overwhelming. Notice that the appearance is so overpowering that the entire Roman guard simply lost nerve. Exactly how powerful are we to assume this angel is? Well, let's remember Some of the descriptions we have of angels in the Bible. Psalm 103 verse 20 calls the angels, you mighty ones. We also know from 2 Peter 2.11, it says that they are greater in might and power than we are. Let's also remember from 2 Kings chapter 6. King of Syria was about to attack the city of Dothan. Suddenly he sees angels, horses, and chariots of fire. The Syrians are terrified, and then the entire army is struck with blindness. 
Or if you want another example of the power of angels, think of just one of God's angels who struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, utterly crushing the power of Egypt. So on Easter Sunday, several hundred Roman guards at the most, one mighty angel so terrifying, hardened men of battle, simply fell to the ground like dead men. They were utterly defeated. They feared for their lives. Matthew says they trembled. And so it came to be by the time the women arrived at the place of the tomb of Jesus, the soldiers were gone. The place was deserted. Since the resurrection of Jesus happened without human eyewitnesses to see it, we need to ask ourselves, did it really happen? And in truth, that's what the rest of Matthew, as well as what Luke and John tell us about, really represents for us. They present powerful proofs that Jesus was indeed risen. Furthermore, the book of Acts begins with the same theme, giving us evidence for the resurrection. I'll leave that matter for tomorrow, but for now, let's consider the implications of the resurrection. And the first implication of the resurrection is that it provides us with convincing proof that Jesus is indeed who he said he was. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have been given authority over all things. So listen to his claim, made back in John 10, 17-18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. That's an outrageous claim. You know, some time ago I heard of a church after a child had died in their congregation. They had a very public service, and they announced even to the press that they would raise the child from the dead through their prayers. I say it was an outrageous claim to make. I mean, were they arrogant fools, or did they really have that power? And the answer was, proof's in the pudding. Show me. That's the thing we need to ask. And of course, they were unable to do that which they claimed they could do. They were proven to be charlatans and fools. Well, the same thing could have been said of Jesus. I mean, after all, he claimed that no one could take his life from him, but that he voluntarily would lay it down. Well, that in itself, that's an outrageous claim. In essence, what he was saying is that the men who judged him, the men who crucified him, they were only able to do so because he gave them the permission to carry out their wicked schemes. Jesus said he had authority over all of that. Again, it's easy to say. Proofs in the pudding. And then Jesus said he had authority to raise his life up again. There. If he could do that, well, then we'd believe his other claims. So let's consider the claims of Jesus. Do you remember the arrest of Jesus? Peter had taken out his sword. He said he'd defend Jesus. What then transpired? Jesus then made the claim that he could have called legions of angels and they would have protected him. And we do know that's true. We know it because when only one angel was sent... Roman guards quaked with fear and deserted their post. That occurred at the resurrection. In short, the resurrection not only affirms that with God all things are possible, but the resurrection also affirms that the things that Jesus had been saying are true. You know, it's one thing to say he's Lord of all. It's quite another to demonstrate that matter as Jesus' body lay dead in the tomb. There's one more thing I need to say. We know that Jesus had already on three separate occasions raised the dead. Luke 7 records Jesus raising a young man in the village of Nain. He simply touched the funeral buyer and the young man was raised from the dead. Then in the next chapter, Luke chapter 8, a man named Jairus, 
a local synagogue ruler, has a daughter who's died. Jesus goes to his house, raises the girl from the dead. John chapter 11, the most famous incident of all, Lazarus has already been decomposing in the tomb. Jesus raises him from the dead. While that did occur, it must be said that these three people would eventually die again. Yes, they were raised all right, but the old order of things remained as they once were. But when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, his resurrection was unlike any other resurrection. Paul would later reflect on that. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, he calls Jesus the first fruits. Jesus' resurrection exemplifies a new kind of humanity. This, for the first time, is that the human race has a new perfect body. It's not subject to disease. It's not subject to aging. It's not subject to death. It's an indestructible human life. He not only will never die again, he cannot die again. When for the rest of this week we actually consider the resurrection appearances of Jesus, we're going to find that on the one hand, people do have difficulty in recognizing him, but on the other hand, they do recognize him. That's because he is fully human, and yet he looks different. His body now belongs to the age to come. Years later, Paul would stand before King Agrippa, and he'd ask him a profound question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That indeed is the Easter story. With God, nothing is impossible. With God, the impossible has happened. Jesus lives. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, is there any importance to understanding that the women who arrived at the tomb had no anticipation of what they were about to discover? Yeah, there sure is. I mean, it tells us that they were not gullible women who, uh, you know, were you know, would believe in the resurrection of Jesus when there's no evidence. In fact, what they believed in was the death of Jesus, and that was the end. Um, So when the resurrection happened, it ran counter to what they expected, and that tells us everything about the certainty, or that is, the historical certainty of this event. Um, The women uh, who came to take care of the body of Jesus had spices in their hands, found that he was raised and there was no reason for the spices. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Last month, our friends at InDoubt launched the InDoubt Show with host Andrew Marcus, and it hit the ground running. The show kicked off with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld and included a segment called Dangerous Doctrines, where Dr. John and Andrew confront and unpack, unravel, shed light on some of the crooked theological thinking out there today. The In Doubt Show also recently featured a conversation with a co-creator of one of the most popular current Christian dramatic series, The Chosen. Just a few of the great selection of guests so far and many more to come. So stay tuned for new engaging conversations with Christian experts and leaders ready to speak into the relevant issues of life, faith, and culture young adults are facing today. The In Doubt Show, online at indoubt.ca 
or at the InDoubt YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so never to miss a new episode.